My major pain has, has been invisible. The mobility aid makes it better. It gives me freedom. It can get to the core beliefs we have about ourselves. Don't ever think you're alone. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Joe about her complicated health journey so far. In 2017, Joe was diagnosed with pancreatitis, and this ended up being a turning point after which her whole body went haywire. Since then, she has been diagnosed with a huge list of chronic illnesses, including small fiber neuropathy, Sjogren's syndrome, cervical cranial instability, mast cell activation syndrome, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and more. I was familiar with Joe through TikTok and had seen clips of her on television uh, on her TikTok, a clip of the TV show Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, on which I saw her talking about small fiber neuropathy. This was right around the time when my doctors told me that I might have small fiber neuropathy. So I really wanted to talk to Joe about this because I could tell that she was knowledgeable on the subject. But I didn't realize that she also has mast cell activation syndrome, the other thing that I'm currently being evaluated for, on top of having all these other diseases, including pancreatitis, that we have never covered on the podcast before. As you might imagine, scheduling interviews for a podcast about chronic illness can be difficult, and we ended up rescheduling a few times before finally sitting down to have our conversation just a few days ago, and it was wonderful. I love this conversation. Joe and I really connected over the things that we've shared in our experiences, and I was honored to learn and share more about her story. She's been through a lot since 2017. Before getting sick, she loved to challenge herself with biking and running and swimming, and all of that came to an abrupt halt. She's had to recontextualize her life and how she thinks about happiness and gratitude, learning not to live in the future or in the past, but in the present. There's a lot to learn in this episode about a wide variety of illnesses from a first-hand perspective from the person living with them, and there's also some deeply personal moments that I found very moving. So once again, I am thrilled to bring you this episode today, and we'll get to it in just a couple minutes. We have a brand new Patreon supporter this week that I'm so excited to thank, and it is actually Joe, our podcast guest. Joe signed up on Patreon just a few hours before we did our recording, and I noticed it right after we were done. You know, I had my phone, uh, my phone notifications turned off, turned my phone over after we finished the recording while we were still on a Zoom chat, and got to thank her in person for signing up on Patreon, which I was very excited about. Patreon is an amazing platform that helps people who enjoy a content creator's work to support that creator directly with monthly financial contributions. We now have 21 people supporting this podcast through Patreon and I couldn't be more grateful for their support. Everyone who signs up on Patreon gains access to our monthly bonus episodes, and there is also special recognition and even gifts available to our different tiers of support. Special thank you to our Patreon producers, supporting the show at the highest tier of $25 per month, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. I know a lot of us who are affected by chronic illness are unable to work and finances are tight, which is why any financial contribution to support this show is so amazing and I appreciate it so much. Our supporter tier starts at just $2 per month, so if you're interested in supporting this podcast, I hope you will check it out at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast. Another great way to support this podcast is by signing up through Rare Patient Voice to participate in research studies and surveys that will benefit your community with your diagnosis. If you have been diagnosed with any sort of disease, it does not need to be a rare disease. Any diagnosis will qualify you to sign up on Rare Patient Voice. 
Once you've signed up, if you are selected to participate in a research study or survey, you will earn an average of $100 per hour for answering questions about your disease. And you can also sign up if you are a caregiver of somebody with a diagnosis of any kind. Use our link when you sign up, rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast, and you will be supporting this podcast as you sign up. You can connect with this podcast on our social media platforms of Instagram and TikTok, both at Major Pain Podcast. Just interacting with our content on social media is a great way to help support the show. And I always tag our podcast guests on those platforms if they use those platforms. So if you want a quick and easy way to find people who've been on this show and connect with them, social media is a great way to do so. And of course, we always appreciate any ratings and reviews on the podcast platform of your choice. I'm always keeping an eye out for new ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or new ratings on Spotify. I'll remind you as always that my guest and I are not medical professionals. So please do not take any medical action based off this podcast without first consulting your doctor. And with that, we'll jump into our amazing episode with Joe about her complicated medical history. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm very uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. This has been a long time in the making. I'm thrilled that we're finally, uh, finally chatting in real time. Yeah, we've I spent some time getting to know each other on TikTok and hearing each other's stories, and uh, I feel like I'm uh, comfortable and know you already. So looking forward to it. Yeah, totally. And of course, listening to the other podcasts, which are done so well, I'm really happy to be a part of your project. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Yeah, and I've I've learned a little bit about your story enough to know that we have a lot in common, and that's one of the we main do. reasons I really want to talk to you today is because. Um, you know a lot about things that I'm trying to learn about, so I'm excited to get to that. But no before, pressure, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get into all the health stuff, let's get to know you a little bit. So, Joe, sure, why don't you tell sure. us about yourself? My name is Joe. Uh, as you said, that's silly. We don't have to say that. <laughs> uh, so, I'm a uh, middle-aged woman who uh, looks younger than she is because of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which uh, certainly is... Uh, something that uh, you've had a lot of on your show. Um, I'm married to an incredible woman who uh, is just, I, I don't even know how our lives, uh, our paths crossed at the right time. And my life has been amazing since. Uh, her name is Christine. We have a dog and a cat and we are both very family oriented and uh, retired former teachers. I taught for uh, 22 years before I got sick, middle school, Italian and Spanish. And uh, some people say, you've got to be crazy to teach middle school. And I say, yes, you do. But I <laughs> loved it. I loved it. Um, and unfortunately, I had to step away from that due to my health concern. I come from an Italian family. Both my parents were born in Italy, uh, which is how I got into uh, teaching Italian and Spanish and loved to travel. I used to actually bring groups of people to Italy over the summers uh, when school was out. <laughs> so uh, it's my other favorite country. So I was um, always a very social person, always had a lot of people around me, very interested in being around other people. I was diagnosed later in life with ADHD and realized that that social butterfly aspect was by design. <laughs> and um, I was pretty politically active into my 30s when um, 
Christine and I got really serious. We wanted to be married. We saw how many things were not afforded to us as a couple compared to others and wanted to leave the world a better place than we found it. And both of us spent decades working on that. And then into my 40s, um, I was taking control of my health. I became very active running and outdoors, biking, swimming, just any kind of outdoors challenge I could get my hands on until I got sick. And so that's my life, family, friends, wife, pets, teaching, leaving the world a better place than I found it. Just who I am. That's awesome. I mean, that's such important stuff. I really commend you for your activism. And it sounds like things changed dramatically when you got sick. So, Joe, what is your major pain? I have many major pains. And it is <laughs> difficult. It is difficult to assign one as major over the others. This started with me with a bout of acute pancreatitis in 2017. And that was kind of the point in my life that everything turned around and that my body went haywire. What I didn't realize before that is that I had Ehlers-Danlos and that um, things that kind of were always being said is, oh, they happen sometimes, or oh, you're overreacting, oh, you just have a low tolerance or pain, or, you know, those kinds of things uh, weren't the case, that I had major, I had major pain my whole life. I just thought that was normal. But after April of 2017, when I had about acute pancreatitis, and all the other illnesses um, came forward. I, I found out I have a lot of major pains. I now have chronic pancreatitis. I have Sjogren's disease. I have small fiber neuropathy. I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. I have what is believed to be a tethered cord and uh, cervical cranial instability. I've had a history of increased intracranial pressure, likely from the tethered cord, which we're trying to still get to the bottom of. I have mass cell activation disorder. <laughs> I have a lot. I have a lot going on. And we just recently found out, I mean, just recently, that uh, the source of the pancreatitis, and the pancreatitis was a life of its own. I went through absolute hell to stop going from uh, recurrent acute pancreatitis for about three years. It was constant, just constant having pancreatitis in, in and out of the hospital to where it is now, where it's manageable. So uh, and we just found out that that's a very strange genetic situation. So oh, wow. a lot of major pains. So the pancreatitis is, is genetic. There's been suspicion. Cystic fibrosis is caused by having two genes, uh, variants for cystic fibrosis, one from each parent. And there are, I think, something like 1,700 variants that could cause it. So, you know, you could get one. They don't have to be the same variant. Um, and up until recently, the belief was that if you had one and not two variants, you were a carrier. And, and that was simply at a non-asymptomatic carrier. Um, about a year ago or more, there was a study published, and there has been suspicion of this, that certain of those variants can cause symptomatic illness that is similar to like a low level of, you know, um, of cystic fibrosis. Mm. And one of the big issues with cystic fibrosis is pancreatitis, narrowing in the strictures in the 
bile ducts and the pancreatic ducts. So when I was going through all this with the pancreatitis, what ended up happening was I did have strictures in my pancreatic duct and I had to have it stented and all this stuff. And I do carry one of the cystic fibrosis variants that they have found can be uh, responsible for this form of pancreatitis. And the geneticist that I saw in December uh, still couldn't actually pin it on that at that point because they hadn't come together and had a consensus about it, whoever they are. And uh, sometime at the end of January, there was some kind of meeting or something that they all got together and they said, all right, we're putting that on your genetic report. It's you. That's where your pancreatitis is coming from. Or at least can contribute to, you know, can be a factor in this. Yeah, interesting. So I actually have a, a friend with pancreatitis, but I know we haven't covered that yet on the show. So I'd love to talk a little bit about um, what is pancreatitis and what does it feel like? What does it do in your body? Let's start with what the pancreas is. Uh, the pancreas actually has two functions. It has exocrine and endocrine. So the pancreas, it, it helps in digestion and uh, produces um, um, enzymes to help with digestion. So the other thing the pancreas does is it helps in regulating blood sugar. And uh, it's much more complicated than that. But it does have those two functions. And it's a very uh, nasty little organ when it's unhappy. It's very, very painful. I have not had children, but I know people who have had children and have, have pancreatitis and acute pancreatitis who say it is worse than childbirth. I don't know that for sure, but I've been told that. Um, basically for me and in all of the different pains that I experience, pancreatitis is the most severe. It's like the most stabbing. Um, it's just really overwhelming. There's no, there's nothing subtle about pancreatitis. And I often describe it as what it would feel like, what I imagine it would feel like if you were impaled because the pain starts under my rib cage and then it exits like out back by my kidney. And it just is this feeling of, like I said, I, I imagine what it might feel like to just be impaled because it's just this straight line. It's severe pain. It's doubles you over. I mean, I am pretty much in the fetal position when it's at its worst and um, it's nauseating. It's, it's just, it's how pancreatitis, I, I experience a lot of pain, nerve pain, uh, headache pain, uh, backache, back pain. I have a lot of pain. There is really, not, I've had ulcers, um, I, I have chronic ulcer disease. I have never experienced anything that I can compare pancreatitis to. It is nasty and the pancreas doesn't heal easily. The pancreas, and that's why pancreatic cancer is one of the most um, fatal cancers there is. The pancreas doesn't regenerate. It is just, it doesn't like to be touched. It doesn't like to have things done to it. So it's difficult to treat pancreatitis with, you know, surgeries and such. So it's, uh, it's tough. It's tough. I'm going to tell you, I mean, I, if I could give up any of my pain, it would be that one. Do you know anything about the... Um the function of pancreatitis? Like what is functionally happening in the body when that pain strikes? Uh, it's different for different people. 
And that's what's difficult about it. I think like a third of people with pancreatitis, it's idiopathic. They don't even know. But, uh, you know, in some people, there's, uh, there's inflammation. Um, and the, the, because the pancreas is very complicated, and I'm not a scientific person, I know there's a lot that has to do with, um, is with some things that are producing uh, insulin and stuff. So not only the pain is caused by the inflammation and the nerves and such, but then it also has other aspects to it. So um, I have um, an odd thing that people don't expect with pancreatitis is I have um, um, hypoglycemia. So when I get really sick and I get really inflamed, I have a really hard time keeping my blood sugar up. Now, a lot of people think there's two types of diabetes, no type one and type two, but they, there is what some people call type three diabetes, which is pancreatitis induced diabetes. And so, um, it, there are so many things that that organ does that we take for granted and the different parts of it do different things that different people experience pancreatitis differently. I mean, I even get it on a different side of my body. Most people will say, their pain is on their right. Mine's predominantly on the left because the tip of your pancreas kind of goes over to the left. Um, in my case, what was happening was that the, your uh, pancreas um, for digestion lets out uh, lipase amylase, some other aces, and the ducts uh, got narrowed and were structured. And so as my body was trying to push those things out, they it got stuck in there. And so it was like backed up and it was inflamed. And then at one point they re removed my gallbladder thinking that, uh, that gallstones and gallbladder sludge could get stuck in those ducts. But as a result, <laughs> it actually ended up scarring and, um, and there's this thing called sphincter of odi dysfunction, which is when this, specific sphincter in your pancreas is supposed to open and close it doesn't do it properly and it can be colicky and painful and i thought i had that for a while but when i did have my pancreatic ducts opened up they found that my um the biliary duct that went from my liver to my pancreas was scarred over and when they opened that up it was quite dramatic apparently and, you know now all of that for me had to be done like a lot of people that those procedures, um, they would go uh, through your mouth and into your esophagus and and um, and perform those procedures in your pancreas that way. Um, because I have a history of gastrointestinal uh, surgery, mine could not be reached that way. And so I had to go through a surgery that had to undo a blockage. I had a G-tube put in my stomach, which is a gastric tube. Um, they wanted to go do all of those procedures through the gastric tube. Um, but it was in 2020, so that took a lot longer than it was supposed to. And no one locally did it, so I, it was a four-hour drive away to get it done. What they didn't know at the time is that I had SIBO, just small intestinal bacteria overgrowth which causes a lot of, of pressure and gas in your intestinal system. And it kept pushing the G-tube out of my body. And, but we didn't know why. And so I would get pancreatitis. I'd have these tubes being put in with a ball being blown up in the end of it. I got to tell you, it was torture. It was a t 2020 was tough on everybody, but 
I will not hesitate to go toe to toe with some people mm-hmm. about what they went through. Cause 2020, I was, you know, and I went through all of this in the hospital without having anybody around to support me because, you know, there were no visitors or anything. And we were four hours away from home. So my wife's sitting in a hotel room and it was just gone through a lot. So right now I have not had acute pancreatitis in a while, but they, so acute pancreatitis is, as it sounds, you have an acute episode of something and then it gets better and, and you're better. Chronic pancreatitis is when you're actually having structural damage to your pancreas and you're having, oftentimes it's, um, it's uh, progressive and, you know, it's, it's chronic as opposed to acute. Um, so now I have chronic pancreatic pain, um, but I've been fortunate that something called a celiac plexus block has been successful with me, which is not with everyone. And basically what that is, is that every three to four months, they do two injections through my back and into my, what's called the celiac plexus, which is a group of nerves, a bundle of nerves that feeds the pancreas and other things. And they inject a pain reliever and steroid and into that bundle um, that blocks the pain coming from your pancreas. So you still have pancreatitis, but the pain is blocked and it is an absolutely barbaric procedure and i will not i mean my pain injection pain medicine doctor is awesome he's a great guy he really is nice he's very caring and he sedates me for it as much as he can because i have to tell them i have to be alert um but i go through it every four months because it is worth it to not have pancreatitis pain for four months. Wow, that is wild. I've never heard of that before. So in 2017, it sounds like that's when your pancreatitis started. And and it this was like a catalyst for a cascade of, of medical issues. What happened uh, after that pancreatitis flare? So the first time I had pancreatitis, like I said, I was running. I, had, I was away at some conference and I had gone out for a run, my favorite, in Central Park in New York. And... I came back and I was having some GI issues that were unusual and I was uh, not feeling well sitting at the meetings and whatever. And I just kept getting worse and worse, this gnawing weird pain in my gut. And uh, we went away, we went on vacation and we were in an airplane and literally, I always say I was on top of the world and it all came crashing down because we were in an airplane. We were in an airplane and I thought I was having a heart attack. I mean, I just felt like I, I didn't know it was this crushing pain. Um, ended up uh you know we landed it was better stayed on vacation it just kept getting worse and worse and then i would say it was probably about two weeks of this going on from the conference until and i so i lived a life of having pain from the ehlers Danlos, from what i didn't realize at the time was the beginnings of Sjogren's, and i was always kind of being told whenever I went to a doctor, had a test, everything's fine. There's nothing wrong with you. You know, look, good, good news. There's nothing wrong. And I'm like, okay. So I got to the point where I just wouldn't go mm-hmm. get things checked out anymore. Yeah. Like I was just like, so I was like two weeks, I think it was about two and a half weeks of this pancreatic pain and just convincing myself that, and, and, and GI issues and stuff that, and convincing myself that it was nothing. And then and my wife kept saying, why don't you go to the doctor? And I was like, no, no, no. They're just going to tell me it's nothing. It's nothing. 
And she came home from work one day and she found me on the floor and just curled up in the fetal position. I remember, I didn't fall. I just remember going, I can't stand anymore. And just sitting where I was and curling up and saying, I just can't do anything else. And so I went to the hospital and the doctors came in and, you know, they did blood work and stuff and they go, right, we got pancreatitis. And I, I was shocked mm. because I never have results like right like up until that point any test they did anything they did was always there's nothing wrong with you and i was convinced they were going to tell me there's nothing wrong with you and send me home and when they said it was pancreatitis and um and i had been vomiting and i mean all the signs that most people would say you're sick right like i was still somehow convinced that i wasn't um i was in the hospital for about two weeks, I think, with that. And then I thought I was getting better. I went back to work. But um, I had kept asking the doctors. I still wasn't, I still didn't understand the difference between chronic and acute. I still didn't understand that the hospital, like, kept you alive. They didn't diagnose you. And, you know, you know, like, I, I, I still didn't get that. And I kept saying to the doctor in the hospital, like, I don't know. I have this big sore inside my mouth and my cheeks are all red all the time. And do you think, you know, my joints hurt and I keep getting this stuff. Do you think maybe I I have like some kind of autoimmune? No, 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 you don't have an autoimmune. We'll run an ANA just to let show you, you don't, the ANA comes back negative. And like, you can't have an autoimmune disease if this is negative. And so I was like, okay, you know, whatever. I was having this, weird like you know people who would come and see me because early on i was really really sick and i didn't remember some of my visitors and they were telling me that i just kept throwing the sheets off of myself going this they hurt they hurt Mm. and and um and then you know i when i came out of the hospital and i was like all right i'm doing better i'm i'm you know i'm healed you know um i started running again and i just kept getting these weird skin sensations like it was at this point um it was the middle of the summer and i remember doing this race it was a i don't know like maybe a five six seven mile race and it was i think like 90 percent humidity out it was like really bad conditions and we're getting to the end of the race and i remember turning to one of my friends and going did it finally get really cold (laughs) and she she goes, uh, no, <laughs> I mean, it was like, this is one of the worst conditions we run in. And then she kept running and I thought, man, I think I would have been worried if somebody said that to me, but I started just freezing at inappropriate times. And, and so, um, all of these other symptoms were continuing to ramp up and get worse, but I kept getting pancreatitis. I just, I kept getting acute pancreatitis. And I kept getting admitted to the hospital for like two weeks at a time because it was just so persistent. Like it would just have this cascade of, of blood work that was coming back strange and whatever. And then, um, I tried going back to work being a teacher. I had the summer off. Uh, I went back to, to work in, uh, September, end of August, September. And I s- knew that something wasn't still wasn't right and they the only thing they could find that was chronically coming back as 
wrong was this really strange um, copper deficiency. Mm. And copper can uh, cause these symptoms of, of small fiber neuropathy and, and copper deficiency. So they had me taking copper and they sent me to a neuro, uh, um, neuromuscular disease doctor locally who does punch biopsies for small fiber neuropathy. Um, man, this was so long ago. I'm forgetting some of the details. There was a lot going on. There's yeah. dysautonomia. I forget. I forget. I have dysautonomia as well. When I had the pancreatitis, in April until probably August, the medical community kept focusing on the recurrent pancreatitis. They weren't paying attention to these other things that I was bringing up. And then I went to my primary and I was like, look, there's all this other stuff going on. And one of the big things was that when I would stand up, I would, the world would go dark and um, and then I'd have to wait and sit down again and whatever. And so she goes, well, let's, let's do your blood pressure sitting and standing and a few minutes later. And I remember the nurse's face when she did my blood pressure after I stood and she did it again, like every so often. And my doctor came in and she goes, we're sending you to a cardiologist with that Like just my blood pressure wasn't recovering. And, that was the first thing that then the medical community started saying, okay, there's something going on here. So that's how I eventually ended up at a neurologist. And I would get these episodes of maybe at work and I, I, I'd get these episodes where just my skin would just hurt. It would feel like a layer of boiling water under the surface of my skin. And typically I'd wake up and my skin would be really, really cold. And then some point later in the day, it would turn into this burning, boiling, and it would just nauseate me. And all I could do was lay down. And my doctor had given me pain meds for something, I think for the pancreatitis, and it helped that nerve pain. So I was able to... um stop the nerve pain by taking the pain medication. And so I kept teaching and I kept going to doctors and I kept pursuing an answer um, until I couldn't anymore. Until one day I was teaching, it was in January of 2018, not quite a year later, I had a particularly challenging class of kids. And I was just it it was a big group of kids and had a lot of behavioral issues and i remember just this pain started and one of them had done something that was really like i needed to address it immediately and i couldn't like i just couldn't move my body or think clearly enough and i it dawned on me in that moment like this isn't safe for them either right like this isn't just that I am struggling to get through the work day and that I am struggling. Like I've got these kids who need me and I can't move. And I remember just saying to them, there was only a few minutes left in class. I said, look, we're going to call it a day. And I sat at my desk and when the bell rang, I went to the principal and I said, I have to go home. And I haven't been home back since. Yeah. And 
um, so I had the punch biopsies done and they came back borderline. They didn't come back. Yeah. So what a punch biopsy is they do like a, a, it's almost like a hole punch in your leg, in your different parts, as you know, and they analyze it and they say whether or not you have small fiber neuropathy. And it happens that the, the clinic locally that does the punch biopsies, they analyze them right in the clinic. They don't have to send them out and stuff. So my doctor looked at it himself. And he said that there's a lot of inflammation and the nerve endings are, are narrowed and stuff. And he goes, but, you know, if somebody got this reading back on paper, they'd say you're still in the normal range or the low end of normal. But that range is like, for all people. And that's a, that's what we would expect of like an 80 year old man, mm. not a, you know, at the time, I think I was like a 45 year old, no, 47 year old woman. Like we wouldn't expect you to have that. So we're going to go with a working diagnosis of small fiber neuropathy. So we couldn't find the cause of it. I was convinced that it was Sjogren's because of the autoimmune symptoms I was having. And just because I'm always thirsty, always thirsty. I mean, I would run a 5K and people would have a little bottle of water with them, right? And I would have a backpack of water and it would be empty, not even halfway through. Like it was constantly thinking my eyes are really dry. My mouth is really dry. My skin's really dry. Like there's all these symptoms of Sjogren's, which dries up your, your moisture glands in your body. Um, but my blood work was coming back negative for that. So if you go through a diagnostic criteria for Sjogren's there's like I don't know how many categories maybe five categories and you have to have stuff from each category so I had stuff from every category but one category was um positive blood work or a positive lip biopsy so I went and had a lip biopsy done mm. and the lip biopsy which was not easy they sent me to do a lip biopsy but didn't know who did lip biopsies and so kept sending me to the wrong doctor so if anybody wants to know, it is an ear, nose, and throat otolaryngologist. That's who does lip biopsy. So I finally found the ear, nose, and throat doctor. She did the lip biopsy, and it came back as suggestive of Sjogren's, not diagnostic. Clinical correlation is uh, recommended. I was like, well, then that means I have Sjogren's, right? Because I have the clinical correlation, and but nobody was willing to say I had Sjogren's. Um. We continued looking for the reason of the small fiber neuropathy. The copper deficiency wasn't low enough to be responsible for the small fiber neuropathy. Um, I ended up going for a second lip biopsy two years later. It came back with the exact same thing. And then just last November, I went to a Sjogren specialist out of state. And he ordered those two lip biopsies and had his pathologist look at them. And they were positive. Wow. They were absolutely positive. So the answer to my small fiber neuropathy has been sitting in a lab for four years. Yeah. And, and this is really, sorry to interrupt you for a sec, but I, go right ahead. I've been learning about small fiber neuropathy recently. I've mentioned this a few times on the podcast, but I'm still waiting to get my punch biopsies done. Um, we have a strong suspicion that I have it because I had an abnormal sweat response test when I had a dysautonomia panel done. Um, and small fiber neuropathy is actually a form of dysautonomia. I keep saying that it is a very poorly named disease because it, it isn't what it sounds like. <laughs> uh, 
Um, a lot of people ask me when, oh, you have small thymopathy, so you have tingling hands and feet? I'm like, you have no idea. No. That, that's, right. That's, 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 that's peripheral that's, neuropathy, which is a serious yeah, condition right. as well. Right. Um, Absolutely. But that's yeah. not right. That's why it's poorly named. I want to say this before you go on. I, I never want anyone to think that any illness or disease is lesser than another. And that's something that kind of bothers me. Sometimes people will say to me like, oh, I shouldn't complain with everything you're going through or whatever. And I'm like, look, what I'm going through doesn't change what you're going through. We don't know if what I'm going through is worse. Like, no, but there's no comparison of all this stuff. So when I say that about uh, people, when I say I have small fiber up and go, oh, you have tingling hands and feet. I'm talking about medical professionals who say that to me. Right. Who I want to be like, you should know better. I, so, I'm on the exact ahead. same page with you. I say the same thing all the time about not comparing. That's fundamental to the, uh, to the spirit of this podcast is that if we were to compare what's better or worse, we'd be ruined. You know, <laughs> like, like you can't, you can't function in a, in, in an open way when you're dealing with chronic illness, if you're constantly comparing what people are going through to, to what's better or what's worse. Well, and it's hard enough to deal with what you have, right? Like, yeah. what good does it do? What good does it do for me to compare when I still have to deal with what I have to deal with, right? right? Like, I can try to compare what I have to what you have and you to what I have, but it doesn't change that we're both in pain and we're both navigating this very challenging system that doesn't understand chronic pain. Yeah. And that, that our bodies, you know, the reality is that we will have pain the rest of our lives. That sucks for anybody, no matter what pain we have. And so there is no comparison because you're only living in your own skin. So yeah. I wanted to say that now because I made the comment about how bad uh, pancreatitis is and compared to childbirth and comparing it with my other uh, pain. And I wanted to clarify that what I said was if I could get rid of any of the pain that I have, it would be pancreatitis. I'm not saying that pancreatitis is worse than anybody else's pain. I'm just saying of the yeah. different kinds of pain that I have, right? Uh, that is the one that is the most um, distracting and severe. Yeah, and so, I think it's totally fair to compare your own pains to yourself, to your own right. other pains, because this is your story. You know, it's your episode, your mm -hmm. story. And, and that's totally fair as well. And when I listen to other people, sometimes internally I compare what I'm going through to what they're talking about um, as an, an internal exercise that's sort of, you know, not even intentional. Um, and I think that that's yeah. normal. It's but, human. I think it's human. Yeah. Absolutely. But the whole idea of, you know, saying, oh, well, I have the worst pain and, you know, because I, that all makes me really uncomfortable. You know, I, I feel like... What we all go through as individual and what we go through changes throughout our lives. And if you identify yep. by having the worst pain, then you're not leave, leaving yourself space to improve, which is possible with everyone also. You know, you just never know um, what's going to happen. Everything's relative. And you may have pain the rest of your life, but it may be uh, to a lesser degree because of some discovery absolutely. that's made. Who knows? Oh, absolutely. Or it, absolutely. Might, it might go down and to a level where you don't even notice, even though it's still right. there. Uh, right. Because you get so and, used to it also. Right. And then the other part of that is that, you know, life goes on whether or not you have pain. Right? The time's going to go on no matter what, whether or not you have the pain. Yeah. And so it's about how do you, how do you navigate through that time 
with it. And we all have, and this is what's been so amazing to me in this journey, is recognizing how intricate and amazing the human body is. You know, we go to school and we learn like, you know, this is the digestive system and you have peristalsis and this goes through. But you never learn. And I mean, I, I haven't gone beyond high school science. I, I was a humanities gal in college and graduate school. So this is my limited perspective. But, you know, we don't really get into the, well, why? You know, what causes peristalsis or what are the mechanisms behind it? And what people don't realize, and I didn't realize until going through this, is just how much we don't know mm-hmm. about the human body and just how much they're discovering all the time. I mean, even just with genetics, like when you have a genetic sequence or genetic panel done, there's only like, I think, 20% of it that they even know anything about or what it like. There's just constant discovering. I'm going to get into what they're learning about now with epigenetics, which is a whole other you know, they're just learning so much about the human body, even this discovery about the, the cystic fibrosis gene. I mean, it's, there's so many things. And to say that you have small fibrinopathy and I have small fibrinopathy and that person has small fibrinopathy, it can be caused by completely different things. And what helps us is going to be different. And what that feels like to each of us is going to be different. And so a lot of people don't recognize that idiopathic things, which I hate that word, right? Mm. That we just don't know. It's not like, it's not that, that, that there is no reason for it. It's that we're just more advanced than science is, right? (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's not that there is no cause. It's that we haven't determined the cause. And that, that is, that is the frustrating thing for me with doctors sometimes is that, you know, they'll diagnose you with an idiopathic something and stop trying to find the cause. And this is this is why small fiber neuropathy fascinates me, uh, because this is the one disease that I have learned about where when you have it, they try to figure out why, because they might be able to stop it. Because small fiber neuropathy is ongoing damage to your nerve fibers, um, the small fibers that's... Which feed everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're all throughout your whole body. Um, but if they're being damaged, they should be able to find a cause. And if they can, right. then they can stop it. And sometimes it will reverse. And like it's most right. common in diabetes. I think that's what right. I've read. That's the most common place where it happens. It sounds like in your case that the Sjogren's was the actual cause of the small fiber neuropathy. Well, interesting. I'm going to tell you something interesting about that. The Sjogren's is what we're we're saying is the cause of the small fiber neuropathy. But I want to tell you something interesting, especially since you're you're dealing with us. Uh, a couple of years ago, right after I was diagnosed with, um, with, with Ehlers-Danlos, which is another story altogether, um, I had been wanting, I have a lot of allergies and a lot of, you know, with the mast cell activation, but I also have a lot of allergies to medications and specifically to steroids, believe it or not, which is a very rare allergy to have, but with someone who has children. And someone who has small fiber neuropathy, being allergic to steroids is really not a good place to be. <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, so I've tried everything. And so like my, my pain management is narcotic medication. I wear a fentanyl patch and I take uh, hydrocodone for breakthrough pain. And I have no problem saying that. And I want to say it because I want people to know that, that uh, opioids are positive for people who need them. 
and that the regulation of people like me who have chronic pain would be, um, it, it would just be cruel. And I have been on them for five years without needing an increase, without asking for more than I've been prescribed. So I want to put that out there because the other thing is, the reason I'm saying that is because I tried every pain treatment that was offered to me. I tried lidocaine infusions. I tried everything because even though the opioids worked, I know that there's side effects and I know that there's, you know, there might be something better that wouldn't just mask it, but would actually make it better. And nothing helped. And so we were down to trying IVIG, which is uh, intravenous immunoglobulins, which I don't know if you've spoken about before, but that was the one thing that was remaining. And I was, insurance wouldn't pay for it for me because I didn't have, because the small fibroneuropathy was idiopathic, um, they wouldn't pay for it. So uh, a couple of years ago, I don't know when it was, after I was diagnosed with um, uh, Ehlers-Danlos, I would tell my doctors that I have learned that I can fire doctors and I can choose my doctors. Mm -hmm. And the ones that I work with are amazing. I have an amazing team of doctors. And what they understand about me is that I have a history, you know, in, in education. I have advanced degrees. I know how to do research. I will bring them research because they're not going to spend as much time looking for me as I am. And then I'm going to say to them, in your professional opinion, what does this mean? And they're willing to work with me that way. They know I'm not going to bring them, you know, hey, look at this blog post that I found. They're going to, they're going to expect from me research that's, that's, you know, studied and double blind and all that kind of stuff. So I found a research that had come out that said that there was success in using IVIG in people with Ehlers-Danlos and small fiber neuropathy. And I, I wrote to the author. I was like, I need a copy of this. She sent it to me. I sent it to my neuromuscular disease doctor. I said, look, can we get me IVIG now? And he said, well, and this is why I said the process I go through with sharing science, because I know that I don't understand all of it. He said, well, the people in this study had one of these two autoantibodies, uh, FGFR3 and TSHDF. And so because we haven't tested you for those, because they're super, super rare, um, you know, we can't use it yet, but we can test you for those. I said, okay, sure, whatever. It's a blood test. So well, at the time, there was only one lab in the whole U.S. that was doing that blood test. And he's like, I, I'm going to tell you, I don't suspect it's going to come back positive because this is really this ultra rare situation, but let's do it. Came back positive for TSHDS, which is trisulfated heparin disaccharide, I think, something like that. So I was like, great, let's do IVIG. Insurance wouldn't approve it. Mm. However, the reason I'm saying this is because Sjogren's is known to cause um, um, strong fiber neuropathy. But this TSHDS is found more often in people with small fiber neuropathy than not. And so they haven't found a causal relationship to it, but they know that people who have this high levels of this autoantibody can have um, small fiber neuropathy. So I kind of have both going on. Mm. 
Like, I don't know. Is it the Sjogren's causing the TSHDS autoantibody to go up? Is it that I have both things? Is it, you know, what is it? What I do know is now that I have the Sjogren's diagnosis, there is a possibility of trying IVIG, which is, I'm just really excited about, even though it's scary. And not to complicate matters, but I've just, you know, I'm going through this process of being evaluated for mast cell activation syndrome, which you mentioned that you have. And I also, while looking into small fiber neuropathy, and I asked my allergist who I'm just so lucky to find this guy who knows about mast cell activation syndrome and has treated other people. And, you know, my presentation was neurological, which is really unusual. So I'm so lucky that he was even willing to try the medication because all the testing was negative, but the testing is really inaccurate. So, um, right. It's all that timing, right? Exactly. Yeah. You have to test within like 20 minutes of being exposed to the thing that's making your mast cells flare. So I asked him about small fiber neuropathy. I said, Hey, this is this other thing that I'm being tested for. Is there a connection between mast cell activation syndrome and small fiber neuropathy? And he said, yes. He said that doctors don't know what it is. They don't understand it yet. But he has seen those two things show up in the same people a lot. Um, so, so that's another potential cause. And this one makes a lot of sense to me because when your mast cells activate, they release mediators into your bloodstream, histamine being the most well-known, tryptase being the only other one that I remember. <laughs> um, so it fills your bloodstream with all this stuff. And if your mast cells are doing that constantly, it, those things can reach like toxic levels, basically. Um, and, and that's where a lot of these symptoms will come from, but it makes sense to me that if your whole body is being flooded with too much of something, maybe that could be damaging your nerve fibers. This is a non, you know, non-scientific approach. This is me just guessing based off of what, uh, what makes sense in my brain, but I've done no research about it. And here I am sharing it, sharing it in public, but you know, I, yeah, but there, there does seem to be a connection there. So you have several things that could be causing you know small fiber neuropathy well if you think about it our whole body it's all a cascade it all it's a it's an ecosystem right and it doesn't take much to have one thing thrown off that throws off everything and the you know small for people who don't know small fiber nerves uh, a lot of times they'll talk about um the small fiber nerves are those little tiny nerves at the end of your nerves so People will talk about like um, when they describe a disease like muscular multiple sclerosis and they talk about a wire and it has a plastic coating on it and people with multiple sclerosis like that plastic coating gets chipped away mm-hmm. that's outside of the wire and so that the wires get exposed and that you know that's kind of the analogy that's given well small fiber neuropathy you know at the end of if you think about when you try to uh, the old days when we used to wire speakers, but <laughs> you think about if you have a wire, if you're trying to wire something in your house or whatever, and the ends can those little tiny ends can start to shear off and something, and you got to clip it to make it clean and turn it. And stuff. That's like the small fiber on a mm. wire is those, and those feed everything mm-hmm. that feeds your organs. It feeds your blood vessels. It feeds your, I think, I mean, you were talking about your sweat response. I don't grow hair on my body anymore because of small fiber neuropathy. Yes. And like I have no hair on my legs, which yeah. some people are like, woohoo, blessing. And I was like, okay, my I hair's falling out of shave. my legs. Oh, the outside of both yeah. of my legs completely hairless, and it's like moving around towards the other side now. Like the front of my right leg is losing its hair, 
And I, yeah. I, I've been bringing that up to doctors for years and they just shrug. But, but this is a thing. Yeah. This is a thing with small yes. fiber. Yeah. I have no, I have no hair on my legs. And I remember one day I was at the neuromuscular disease and it was his nurse practitioner. And she said, um, I said to her, I found a hair on my leg the other day. Does that mean I'm getting better? And she's like, no, she goes, sometimes one will sprout out or whatever. And she goes, but, um, when did you lose the hair on your arms? And I went, what? And I have no hair. Where's my arm hair? <laughs> it's gone. I have no hair on my arms. And I was like, I didn't even remember. I'm Italian. That doesn't happen. <laughs> like, I didn't remember that happening. I just, all of a sudden, so now, like, I don't, but I also, the weird thing is the pinprick sensation. So, like, when they're doing the test and they get the pin and they kind of go up your leg and say, where, where do you not feel it anymore? Um, you know, my wife's usually in appointments with me. And she says that that just keeps going higher and higher up my leg every mm. time. So on one of my legs, they're like all the way, like halfway up my thigh before I feel the pin. And then the other one, it's like just above my knee. And that, like these things, so that's what we talk about. It's those little nerves. It's the ends of, that feed your whole body. And so when you talk about, of course, it makes sense that mass cell activation would, would affect your small fiber nerves. It makes sense that anything would affect them because they're so gentle and tender and they're so at, like, uh, uh, they're so diffuse, you know, they're everywhere in your body. And so whenever you have any kind of, of dysfunction, especially if it's some kind of chemical thing going on, those nerve endings feed those blood vessels that are then inflamed. And, and I, I mean, my face right now is kind of red. That's the big thing that happens to me when I'm having a mass cell reaction is my face turns red. I mean, that's those blood vessels opening and stuff it all makes sense to me that mm. that's connected and what's interesting is that um you know we believe very very strongly and i i 100 percent believe but i because these people haven't been tested we can't say that that the others down in my family can be traced back to my great grandmother on my maternal side because she I never met her, um, but I knew that she had, there was always pictures of her and she had long skirts on and stuff. They lived in, in the country. And, um, and one of my cousins in Italy, one of my cousins in Italy said to me, oh, she always had those skirts on because she had, she didn't have feeling on her legs anymore. And she would get cut while on the farm and they wouldn't heal and whatever. And that's when I wheels started turning. Cause then I remember my grandmother telling me that the sheets would bother her skin mm. and she had like no hair on her legs. And we used to always laugh about, so an Italian grandmother is Nonna. And, um, we used to joke about having Nonna knees because anybody in the family who had my grandmother's physique would have these very specific looking knees. And you can trace those of us who have the Nonna knees as having Ellers Danlos. I mean, it is, and that was what got me thinking that what we always thought was this genetic trait of having bad feet actually ended up being Ellers Danlos. But what was interesting to me is my grandmother had the small fiber neuropathy um, symptoms, but she didn't have children's. And she didn't have, we don't know if she had the TSHDS and we don't know, mm, but she had, it is a puzzle. And so it, cause one of the things that really got to me was, well, so many people in my family have this other else. None of them are as sick as I am then, like by far. And they do say that it can be, it can vary 
and different people and different families. But adding the Shoguns to it and the pancreatitis, like I got the genetic lottery. Like, yeah. I mean, that's a lot. Personality and everything. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot happening in, in one body. And, you know, it I, is. It s- is. small fiber neuropathy alone can be really debilitating. I, I read this great article um, recently from an author who discovered that he has it. And he was talking about how his legs would sometimes just turn off where he just couldn't get the signals from his brain to his legs. And I'm like, this is me, you know, like this is that I, I, I related so much to everything he said in that article, like the hair falling out of his legs, the weird tingly burny sensations in his arms, his, his legs not turning on sometimes. Like those are the things that I tell my doctors I'd when be, I go in. I'd be interested in, in, um, and reading it. If you, if yeah, you're able to share it, I'll send it to you and I'll, I'll post a link in the, the podcast description. Um, okay. I think it's definitely worth sharing. So, so that alone can be very debilitating. And this author in this article, his was idiopathic, meaning we don't know why, you know, we don't know why you have small fiber neuropathy. There's this whole laundry list of things that doctors can check for once you're diagnosed with the punch biopsy, they can see that your nerve fibers are, you know, are shortened. So they know you have small fiber neuropathy, but they don't know what the mechanism in your body is that is causing that to happen and if it can be stopped or even reversed. So uh, that's why this is such a fascinating disease to me on top. I mean, you know, mostly because we think that I might have it, but you know, but who knows? Like I might not, but yeah, but see, here's the thing with small fiber neuropathy. I have heard conflicting theories that small fiber neuropathy is a disease and that small fiber neuropathy is a symptom. Mm-hmm. And so, so, you know, it's just like what you're saying, you know, the prevailing thought is that, Small fiber neuropathy doesn't just happen. There's a reason for it. And so um, that's why doctors are willing to look and look and look until you drive them crazy, which I've been known to do. But, uh, you know, because it doesn't just happen. Like, that's not the disease. It's not like saying someone has diabetes or someone has, um, you know, uh, has heart disease. Like, there's... There's something else behind small fiber neuropathy all the time, or in my case, several things maybe behind it. So it's interesting that um, so few people know about it. And yeah. I think when you said earlier, you said that the most well-known cause of small fiber neuropathy is diabetes. I, and this is a layman's perspective, this is not scientific. I wonder is diabetes the best, the biggest cause of small fiber neuropathy? Or is it that people who have diabetes um, are checked more for it because there's so much risk with losing body parts and with circulation and with, um, and, and because people with diabetes hopefully are being followed more by their physician than someone who doesn't have an illness. I wonder if small fiber neuropathy being linked so much to diabetes is because more people with diabetes get it diagnosed. Fascinating because, you know, blood sugar is a common blood marker that is tested. There is no standardized uh, or even accurate blood test for mast cell activation syndrome. Like you can check your tryptase levels. uh, But like we said, if you don't check it right after a flare up, you're going to miss it. Um, So, you know, and that's the other thing that I've been, you know, deep diving on recently because, um, you know, if you'd asked me like six months ago, do I think my symptoms are more caused by small fiber neuropathy or mast cell activation syndrome? I would have said small fiber neuropathy, but the amount of benefit 
that I've seen from the mast cell activation syndrome protocol is so much more massive than I could have ever guessed. So now I'm like, wow, I guess a lot of my symptoms might be caused by that. <laughs> um, but maybe that's causing, exactly. they're, they're not Maybe that's causing things, the right? small fiber neuropathy. Totally. So yeah. this question, may I ask what your protocol is? Because of course, mine yeah. seems a little different. Yeah, maybe. absolutely. So the biggest thing, uh, the first thing that I tried, I just tried on my own, which was getting a Dow enzyme DAO, which is a, a enzyme that breaks down histamine. Felt a little better mm -hmm. from that. Then I tried the low histamine diet. Felt a lot better from that. And that is really hard. You know, that's like, I, I, it's so incredibly restrictive. It's the most restrictive diet I've tried. And I've eaten all sorts of diets over the years trying to get better. Um, but that helped a lot. That's when I went to the allergist and he prescribed me chromalin sodium, um, which I take four times a day. And, uh, and of course, people do not take any of this stuff without talking to your doctor first. Um, he's prescribed me ketodafen, which is a, H1 blocker that's not generally used in the United States, but it, it is used in other countries for things like asthma. Um, and mine, actually, I order it from Canada and it comes from India. <laughs> um, and then that's an H1 blocker. I take Allegra, which is also an H1 blocker, but I'm taking uh, four 180 Allegras per day. And, you know, I should not be dishing out medical advice. Do not take medical you're advice not, from me. And but, you're being very clear my, that this yes, is your protocol that, from this your is what, doctor under yeah. your doctor's guidance. My doctor has told me that you can take a lot of Allegra. Um, you know, uh -huh. one 180 a day, I think, is the max they recommend, and I'm on four. So definitely above the max that's recommended. I'm taking Pepsid, uh, Famotidine, which is uh -huh. an H2 blocker. Um, yep. And then I'm also taking some naturopathic supplements. Uh, I keep forgetting what it's called. Quercetin. Um, and I found a bioactive quercetin, which, uh, made by this one brand, I think it's natural factors. I want to say, um, and I, I've tried a bunch and I found that that one seemed to help a little bit more and as well as turmeric, just an anti-inflammatory. Um, and they make a, like a bioavailable turmeric, which they claim is more absorbable than the other kinds. I feel like maybe, I don't know. Um, and then I'm also taking, a an anti-inflammatory i was off i went off of it for a while and felt fine but then i started to get stiffer and stiffer and it's getting a little bit you know harder to to function so i just today took um my non-steroidal anti-inflammatory again what's it called peroxicam um so i'm taking peroxicam and uh i'm also taking metoprolol because my um my my heart rate is just a little bit on the high side um, so I'm just taking half a pill at this point per day, but before when we didn't know what was going on at all, the things that I started with that really helped were the anti-inflammatory. I just started taking, you know, ibuprofen and, um, and that metoprolol, which is a beta blocker, which lowers your heart rate. It's a blood pressure medication. My blood pressure is normal. So we have to be really careful with that because I don't want it to go too low. Um, and I think that that is my... My regimen. I got my pill container right here. Am I forgetting anything? Oh yeah, I'm also taking um, magnesium malate, and I I was taking magnesium citrate that my doctor recommended, but I found out that that's actually high histamine, so I switched to the magnesium malate. Oh, and I'm taking um, NAC NAC N acetyl something. <laughs> yeah. Um, which another thing my doctor recommended um, before this, all the mast cell stuff came up, but I did look up everything that i'm taking and cross-reference it to a mast cell diet and the the knack is actually recommended also for mast cell it can help you help your body to produce 
glutathione, I think. Um, and I don't remember exactly how it works, but I've tried going on and off of everything and I keep coming back to these things, keep putting them back in. Um, uh-huh. and I'm still kind of experimenting, taking things out and putting them back in. But I find that, uh, you know, there's all sorts of other stuff with MCAS. Like, you know, you can't exercise too much. Um, you can't exercise too little. You can't necessarily take a hot shower. You have to get good sleep, all these things to keep your mast cells stable. Um, so, you know, that's individualized. All of this is completely individualized, which is what, un- what makes it frustrating, but that's, that's been working for me. That's been working. I, I, I have shot up recently. Interesting. Uh, the one that you mentioned about the chromalin. Chromalin sodium. Uh, yeah. So, chromalin sodium. Uh, so my specialist recommended that, but my specialist is out of state and she can't prescribe. So I don't have anyone here who will prescribe it for me yet. However, other than that one, um, I, of the ones that you mentioned, like NAC, I can't take, and NSAIDs I can't take because of my history of of uh, chronic ulcers. And um, I also take, um, I take two to three one um, eighties of the of the Allegra daily, and then I take um, famotidine twice daily, and a lot of the similar stuff. Mm. And I agree with you that the antihistamine, low histamine diet is very restrictive and what's an interesting thing with my situation is i'm already restricted because of the pancreatitis and then i'm restricted um for allergies because i am allergic to wheat and um anything with wheat in it and i'm allergic to nickel so i have to be very careful with anything that has nickel in it and um so on, add that, and plus I have a very difficult time with foods that are not soft because I have pretty severe TMJ. Mm. So I have to eat really soft foods. I, the first week on the low histamine diet was torture because honestly, one of the things I depend on is uh, nutrition supplements and there are none that are low histamine. Mm. And so I had to start making my own like shakes and things like that. And the days I didn't have the energy to do it. I mean, it is a lot. It's, it's a, a lot, lot to be healthy. That is it's such a, a huge problem. The, the physical toll of preparing every meal is huge. And I am so lucky that it worked so well that I shot up to the point where I could do it um, because I'm still doing that. I'm, I'm preparing every meal for myself. And I, I found, you know, easier things that I can do. I have found a store-bought granola that I can eat and I found store-bought almond milk that I can have. And that's massive. It's like if I'm starving in the middle of the day to just pull something out of the cupboard, I found I'm also off of gluten. I found a gluten-free bread that works for me within the diet. Um, And this is all just trial and error, you know? So I have found a couple things, apples and, you know, peaches and pears, just fruits that, that I can just grab and eat. So I, I found a lot of stuff like that, but but beyond that, it's like I'm making you know vegetable stir fries all the time. I am baking veggies and and chicken, making chicken wings and stuff like that. I found a lot of things where I like the preparation takes maybe ten minutes, and then I just throw it in the oven, and then forty minutes later I have a meal. Um, and yeah, just finding ways to make it easier for myself, and also like some important people in my life who have learned the diet and learn my specificity and have made some meals for me like that. It makes me almost cry just saying that. Cause like 
I'm making every meal for myself. And to have that is amazing. I discovered that there's this coffee shop that has a gluten-free bagel that I don't react to with, uh, you know, cream cheese is actually low histamine. Uh, and I found this master list, histamine master list that I've been using. I'll post that also mm -hmm. um, in the show notes of this episode. I use an app called Fig Food Ooh. is Good. And uh, it is very similar to the master list. I do cross-reference stuff. I got the master list from my doctor, but then I found it online. But uh, the one from like the Netherlands or something, or Germany, and get in different languages. But Fig Food is Good. It has restaurants and grocery stores and you put in like when i go shopping uh it can tell you what's low histamine well mm. it's not just histamine you put in everything like i put in my uh walnut allergy i put in my wheat allergy i put cool. in low histamine i put in low fat i put in like all of those and then it says girl you can't eat nothing no but then it says <laughs> uh and it comes up with which items i could get in that store and whatever and it rates it like a red, green, yellow, uh, mm -hmm. scale. And then when you click on the item, it'll tell you why it rated it that way. Is it because of my nut allergy? Is it because of my weed allergy? Is it because of this? And then even like meats, it'll, it'll always put meats at least in yellow because if they're not fresh, right. um, they get histamine right away. So, so you can, it's not just a, a yes or no kind of list. Like you can go in and say, okay, well this one, I'm uh, going to, you know, I tried awesome. before I've reintroduced it. So yeah. fig, food is good. And I have uh, sent them feedback before when something is in there that um, is inaccurate. And that's another reason why I cross-reference or if they didn't have um, a store or something like, and they, they always respond and it's a great, it's give it a try. Give it a yeah. try. Oh, that sounds um, awesome. Yeah. But, um, but um, what's interesting is, you know, I used to love to cook. Cooking was one of my escapes in life. It was almost like a, it was cathartic. And I, we ate a homemade meal every night. My wife was never like when we got married, we always used to say like, it was a perfect marriage. Cause I like to cook. She likes to clean. <laughs> and you know, like we were always, and so that's what happened. I would come in the kitchen, I'd make dinner and she would have a meal and then she would clean it up. And I, I mean, it was great. And I can't do that anymore. I mean, yeah. I just can't. And I use a wheelchair the majority of the time. And we moved um, out of our house to be in one that was more accessible to me. And we had our kitchen made so that I could reach things better. And I could, and I still just, it's just not enough. And so I, it makes me really sad that I can't do that. But I will say I have my Italian mom you know, she's the Italian mom who cooks and whatever. And it took her a little bit, but then she understood early on. I stopped eating wheat probably over 10 years ago. I mean, that was, became a real obvious agitator to me. And when we have dinner with her, or whatever, she makes me gluten-free pasta. She'll make me gluten-free lasagna and whatever. And I tell you, it is, or, you know, if she's making chicken cutlets. She'll make some for me that's breaded with something different. Or for my mom to do that, like, there is no bigger sign of love to me, right? Mm. There's no, there was no like, you know, cause she, for my mother cooking and sharing and stuff is her way of expressing love and whatever. And for her to go to that extra effort. Um, yeah, it's yeah. pretty awesome. Food it, is love. Support Absolutely. people. Yeah. Food is love and people, just people, yeah. you know, no matter what pain you're going through, even people who don't get it, people who don't, um, 
not don't get it. There are people who don't, they can't imagine it, right? Like we couldn't imagine what this life would be like, but they love us and they want, they don't always get it right, but they know that they, they care about us and they love us and they're willing to, to learn and be there for us and whatever. And it's changes everything. I don't, I don't know that I would still be doing this. I would, I wouldn't be here doing this podcast if it was not for the love and support of my wife and my family. Yeah. It's it's everything. everything. It, it, I feel so grateful for the love that I have in my life in a way that I didn't understand how lucky I was to have it my whole childhood. Cause it's, you know, like you grew up with EDS, didn't know you had it, Mm -hmm. just thought that's what life was like. The same is true of, of good things. You know, you grow up with love. You don't recognize how lucky you are to have it. And when your life becomes challenging in a way that makes challenge greater for the people in your life and they stick by you, you know, that's love. And when you really experience that, it really changes your perception of what love is. Um, And it, it makes you understand that it is literally like the most important thing. You know, we all, we all need food. We all need water. There are certain things that everyone needs and everyone needs love. You know, it, it, it is so important. It, it is something that fuels you through, through the good and the bad. And everybody needs it differently and everybody gets it differently and everybody processes it differently. So it's not to say that people, you know, because there, there are people who are doing great on their own and, and different people just get it from different places, you know, but I always say, you know, when my wife and I got married, we didn't use traditional vows. We wrote our own vows or whatever. And, um, or not whatever we wrote our own vows, but, uh, you know, we didn't say the in sickness and in health one, but I think a lot of people say it and don't realize what that really means. Right. Like we don't understand what sickness is or what health is. And I grew up with an aunt who was, um, a wheelchair user. She, she couldn't care for herself. She was in chronic pain, chronic illness. She lived a block away from us. And we would always just, my mother would make food. She'd go bring some to your aunt. I mean, it was, we would go visit her. It was just part of our life living with this aunt the way she was. Her door was always open and people would walk in. And, and I remember the first time I started using the wheelchair thinking, I had no idea. I didn't understand her. I didn't understand why, like, I, I would see her, like, get up to do things, like, she would, she would move very little, she would get up to change or whatever, but she didn't sleep in her own bed, she didn't, like, she really didn't move much, but I remember thinking, well, if she can do that, and I, like, why can't she move more, why does that not work this way, and I, I guess my point is, I love my aunt. Like she died in 1999. She hasn't been around in nearly 25 years, but I still love her very, very deeply. And I'm still learning from her, but I didn't understand. I just didn't. I didn't understand until it happened to me. And to know that people love us who don't truly get what we're going through because they, they, they're not in it, but they know that they love whatever we're bringing. Like, you just don't know. You just don't know how to thank them. You just don't know how to be appreciative 
of somebody loving you so wholly and fully and completely and being committed to, in our case, even though we didn't say in sickness and health, the understanding was there. So, you know, I, I had to get to a place in my life because I got very, I got very down. I mean, obviously, uh, people would when you go from being as social as I was and as active as I was and as, you know, I was always the kind of person who liked to be in control of her life. And um, to go from that to somebody who just needed help and who didn't understand what was happening and who wasn't in control. And it it was emotionally devastating. The journey through diagnosis sometimes was, sometimes it would be worse the treatment from medical professionals would be worse than the pain mm. at times, you know, being told, being told you need a psychiatrist. You don't need a doctor, you know, being told, uh, how come you're not taking your copper pills? Like, what do you mean? I'm not taking my copper pills. Well, your copper level is not going up. And so you must not be taking them. Well, maybe I, and there's something wrong with my body, but you know what I mean? Like there has been, so much heartbreak and so much pain that isn't physical. You know, when you talk about major pain, the major pain, the physical stuff is, is one thing, but dealing with how life has changed and how I can't be the person that, that I wanted to be. I can't lace up my shoes and go for a run anymore. I can't, plan the future of traveling and you know all of the financial plans we made had to change or whatever so i had to get to a point so the point of this is saying is i had to get to a point where i had to deal with how am i going to live the rest of my life how am i going to do this because yeah something might come along that heals me and i'm suddenly fine and i'm back to my old self but that's not as realistic as where I am right now. And so I just realized one day that like, I, I can't live in the past because that's, I can't change it. I can't go back to it. And it does nothing but drag me down. And if I worry too much about where my future is going, like I can't change that either. And so I really need to like, not put so much energy and sadness into the future. So what I have left is right now. And when I get to this point of my thinking, when I get to the, okay, what I have is right now, I will inevitably look around and say, I have something right now that I am grateful for. I am grateful to be talking to you right now, that you have this platform, that you have brought up the, the, the will within yourself to extend to others to understand what we didn't understand before and to find each other and to come together. I am grateful that I have this phone that you and I can talk through and I do have the financial ability, even though I can't walk to be able to do that. I mean, I'm grateful for my pain in the ass dog who has his own chronic illnesses who needs me all the time. You know, there's always something to be grateful for now. And I just, 
I just think that 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 is the biggest thing in all of this, right? Is that what is it right now? Where are we right now? And what can I be thankful for and grateful for right now? Because we don't know. We just don't know. If I knew that day I was going to get on that airplane and my pancreas was going to go nuts and the rest of my life was going to change, I would have lived my life differently before then, right? Like I would have said, oh, okay, I have this limited amount of time that my body's going to let me do whatever I want it to do. But we just don't know. So just be grateful for today. Be grateful for the advances that are happening in medicine right now. And when it gets to the point that people feel like, I just can't do this anymore. I would always just tell myself, go to sleep, go to bed. And when you wake up in the morning with fresh eyes, because sleep does wonders, you'll find a way. You'll find what your next move is. You'll figure out what the next thing is. And it always worked. It always worked. Even when I, one time, I remember saying to my wife, I don't have any moves tomorrow. Like, I don't, this is the first time that I feel like I'm going to go to sleep tonight and wake up tomorrow and be just as frustrated. I said, I need something to fall out of the sky. And I woke up the next day and there was an email in my inbox from this TV show that was, it was in 2019 and it was, um, it was called Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry. And it was about trying to help people find diagnosis. And literally the day that I said I wasn't going to be able to do it myself, it was in my inbox. And I, and I verified that it was all real and it wasn't like some scam. And I went on the show and the show didn't continue because of COVID, but they put me in touch with the doctor four hours away that fixed my pancreas. <laughs> so, wow. That's so, so you know, yeah, no, I forgot about that. I've seen that on your TikTok, the clips of this show. I wanted to ask you yeah. about that. I'm glad you brought that up. But that's, that's incredible that that happened at that exact moment. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it was, it was unbelievable because I, I had gotten a message from the NIH saying, because I wanted to be in their undiagnosed disease network, I applied to do that. And I had gotten an email that I wasn't accepted. And I said, hey, can you give me some feedback as to why? And they made some allusion to the fact that my BMI was really high. And if I just lost some weight, I'd feel better. God. That's so upsetting. Well, and beyond this, it is upsetting because it goes back to this whole, we don't understand the body. Like you got these people out there, calories in, calories out. It's an, it's an, it's a really simple, you know, equation. That's what weight is. And it's like, our bodies are so much more complicated and beautiful than that. Yeah. I used to run half marathons. I used to train. I used to do whatever. And I was always considered obese on the scales or whatever. And now we know my body doesn't metabolize stuff. Like I'm, I was basically starving even though I was eating and like my body just doesn't metabolize. And this is what I said to the woman at the NIH. I go, so wait, what if my weight is a, is because of my illness? Like, what if it is a metabolic thing? Like, do you guys not research metabolic illnesses? Because I mean, obviously, you know, but it just was at that point where I was like, look, if the national institutes of health, like these are the people that, you know, everybody looks to or whatever, if they're going to just look at me and go, oh, you're just too chubby. What hope do I have? Like, that's literally how I felt at that point. And yeah. that's when I was at my, I was at my lowest. And that's when I got the the email about just the whole thing about the TV show. The way they found me was through a GoFundMe that was started by 
a long lost cousin that I found through ancestry doing DNA. Like just the, the fact that that show found me was unbelievable. The fact that I happen to know somebody who works in reality TV, who was able to verify for me that, yeah, that's legit. It was all just unbelievable how that came about. It was all unbelievable how that came about. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. You just, it it illustrates, you just don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, you really, really don't, you know, I mean, just months ago, I was, I would, my functionality was so low and I had stopped thinking about the future and was just living for the present, like you said. And, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I, you know, I came to that conclusion on my own as well. And then like some weird stuff happened and now I'm doing better, (laughs) you know? And it, like, for me, it's like, I, I still don't know how to process that. I don't know if it's going to last. I don't know if it's a, if it's a phase, it's starting to feel like it might last, but I don't know. I don't want to put any stock into that, but you know, you just don't know. You just never know. I don't know if it's a phase for me with my pancreas. I don't know if, cause like I said, I mean, I really, things are bad for me, but the pancreas stuff, having that under control has just made life so much more livable. Yeah. But I guess that's the thing I, w- I, w- I wanted to maybe encourage or say is even when we find something that is life changing and I, I am hopeful for you that this is going to continue. And if, if, if nothing else, it will slow progress for you, which is huge, right? That's huge. But the big thing is that you can never go back to being the person who was oblivious right. about chronic pain and chronic illness. And so you appreciate life differently, no matter what. And so thinking about today and, and appreciating today doesn't mean you give up tomorrow or lose hope for tomorrow. It just means that you appreciate and not let life slip by you hoping for the best thing to happen. You know, we still love to travel. Travel is very, I did a couple of TikToks about how difficult travel is. And, um, but we love to travel and it's, it's worth it to me to go through all of that to travel, especially because my wife loves to travel so much. I mean, we're still looking at where we want to go to next. I'm not saying like, I don't think about the future. I mean, we're, we've been looking at a couple of possibilities for a vacation or whatever, but what I'm saying is to not put so much stock in that future in that put it off, you know, like, like I'm going to, I'm going to not do the thing that I can do today. And that is really difficult too, because sometimes when I'm having a good day, I want to do everything and I will go to the point of my body just can't move it. I'm like, I'm just, you know, my wife just like, you need to stop. You stop because you're going to pay for this tomorrow. So sometimes you got to think about tomorrow, right? But at the same time, it's just a different appreciation for life. It's just a different appreciation for, and an understanding of our lives are finite. Like everybody's life is finite. And so it's just this appreciation that is different when you say, well, what's really important in life? Who's really important in life? Does it matter what, you know, I don't know, silly things that, that didn't seem so silly at the time. I think that's more what I mean by it. I don't yeah. mean give up no, on thinking you. about the future. You know, it's about 
realistic in perspective and being yeah. that you know the future is not promised for anybody right for and anybody. i think this is a healthy practice in general is that when you hold on too tight to the future you want having very little control over whether or not it comes to pass that's right and it doesn't come to pass you're living a life of disappointment but if you right yeah set yourself goals work towards things but stay open to the future bringing something to you that you wouldn't expect and That's don't right. have this rigid mm-hmm. idea of what you want the future to be and live for the moment. Have a good day exactly. today. Make today right. good, you know, because today mm-hmm. is what the only thing that's real is each moment. And every time a moment passes, it's gone forever. And if that wasn't a good moment, then, you know, that starts to accumulate. So find even with chronic illness, even with your body not working, even with almost no energy where you can't get off the couch you know, find a way to make that moment as good as you can. And it doesn't have to be the best moment you've ever lived, but find a way to feel as good as you can inside of whatever situation you are in. And that Mm -hmm. also accumulates and it can, it can change how you feel about your life and your situation. It absolutely did for me. Um, so I have to ask if you could go back in time and send a message to yourself back in 2017 right before all of this was going to start with everything that you've learned, all the lessons that you've taken from all of this experience. And just, you know, it's been hard. This is not an easy thing to live through. If you could send yourself one piece of advice at the beginning of this journey, what would it be? I'm holding back tears right now. I'm thinking about that person. And I'm holding back tears because I don't have a message for her. I think what I would tell her is you're enough. You've done good things with your life and you've tried and there are just some things that are out of your control. And you're about to have a bunch of things that are out of your control happen. But there are things you're still in control of. You're in control of who your healthcare providers are. You can speak up when something's not right. You still have a voice. I guess the big thing is, and the reason I'm so emotional about this, is because if I could go back to that person in 2017, I wouldn't want her to know what was about to happen. Because mm. if I knew what I was going to go through before I did, I don't, I don't know. Um... I don't know how I would have handled it. The whole process changed me at the rate I needed to be changed at. And I was fortunate to have the love to support me through it. But I think the biggest thing I would tell her is you, you will get to a better place. It will get better. It won't be the same, but you, you have it in you to get to where you need to be. And I kind of had to remind myself of that now, too, because things are changing for me now, too. You know, I, um, over the past six months, I've been dealing with, I have a, now I have a neurogenic bladder. So I, um, I have to catheterize to go to the bathroom and, um, I have some other things happening that are new symptoms and things are progressive in my situation. And so I can wake up one day and 
everything changes. You know, literally, I woke up one day and I just couldn't go to the bathroom anymore. And, and in hindsight, it was happening over time, but I can wake up any day and something can change still. So I think that's what I still remind myself of, that you can do this. Other people have gone before you and done it. And even if they haven't, if there isn't the answer there, the answer could show up and you just got to persist and lean on the people who will let you know. I have an amazing TCP who always makes time for me, will always help me find the answers. Just because someone has a medical degree doesn't mean that they understand a situation. You know, I um, remember when I was first having urinary issues and I had some, uh, a nurse practitioner, a PA, say something like, well, you know, if this continues, you might have to catheterize and you don't want to have to do that. And so I became terrified of having to catheterize. And then when I learned how to catheterize, it was like, oh, this isn't that bad. And then it was a struggle at first. It's hard to get used to and hard to do. And then once I did better with it and learned more about it, I realized that there's so many people out there that do this. Like the number of people that like you see commercials, like, oh, if you need your catheterization supplies, you're like, well, there must be some people out there who need them if they're, you know, have these commercials. I can't, the number of companies that make catheterization supplies is unbelievable to me. The different kinds that they <laughs> each make. And then when you're in touch with them and their willingness to send samples and help and the understanding of it, it really, people who make things sound like, like, um, there's no support out there or whatever, like, like, just don't, don't believe it until you go through it yourself and, and find your support and find your network and find the answers. And that's what I would just tell her is that whatever you go through, just keep plugging like you always have. Yeah. Wow. Really powerful answer. This has been an incredible conversation and there's so much we didn't even talk about, but the things that we did talk about were amazing. And I'm so impressed by your resilience and your strength. And, you know, a lot of people look at someone who's lost functionality. And, you know, I've, I've gone through this myself. And look at that person as being weak. Because, you know, like when I was using a wheelchair, people treat, treated me like a baby out in public. Mm -hmm. And... And the thing is, is like the strength it takes to learn how to use that device and to get out in public and use it, that takes strength, you know? There's no weakness involved in that at all. Yeah. And you have so many different things that require that strength and ingenuity going on at the same time. And I just want to say, like, I just commend you for, for doing it and for con continuing to do it. And I know you don't have a choice, but, you know... But there is still the intention and the action that you are taking that takes so much strength. And I see that. And I just wanted to say that I'm very impressed by that. And also, I'm very impressed by you're just kind of a detective of your own body. And mm -hmm. I, I love that. I love that you are thinking about how things work and, con and continuing to expand your own understanding of not just how your body works, but how bodies in general work you know, not just becoming your own doctor, but becoming your own sort of detective. And I think that that will serve you very well um, moving forward. And you're not, your journey is not over. Like you're at this one point 
and who knows what is coming in the future. Um, but I can say that this has been an insanely enjoyable conversation for me. I am thrilled that you came on the show. Um, please tell our listeners where they can go to find you online, because I know there's so much more to learn about what you've experienced, what you've lived through, what you have to share. Um, so where can our listeners go to find you? Right now, I have been spending some of my time on TikTok um, with my at joe.still.i.rise, as it's my last tattoo I got before uh, small fiber neuropathy took over with a Phoenix thing, Still I Rise. And um, that's the big place right now. And um, I'd like to start doing more lives on TikTok and having other people on there with chronic illness and chronic pain. Um, but that's the big place right now that people can find me. Awesome. And I'll tag you there when I post this episode up on TikTok yeah. as well. Um, Joe, I can't thank, thank you enough. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you. And I, again, I know the... Um, I know the, the fortitude it takes to, uh, to start a project when you don't feel well and to follow through and to continue doing it for as long as you have. And, uh, you know, you, you may be saying you're doing it to help yourself as well and give yourself structure, but you are helping so many people and just the ability to, um, connect with others, to get ideas from others, to find a community is um it's really it's really special so i want to thank you um i want to add i am on twitter too oh great i will i'll give you my twitter i don't um i don't know it i think it's at joe maleka or at joe maleka voice i will send you my twitter okay. but but I do want to thank you. So edit that however you have to. But I want to thank you because you you understood when I was going through some difficult stuff and had to reschedule. I think that was when I had the concussion and I fell out of bed or whatever. I don't know. Um, and it's really important for us to give each other grace as well as we give ourselves grace. So thank you for that. I appreciate it very much. Yeah, of course. I am always happy to reschedule a recording. You know, I've that's very common on this podcast. Um, yeah. If you want to, when you're done with the, the recording, I, I did want to ask you something about the TikTok. So. Yeah, I would love, well, let's, let's wrap this up and chat a little bit okay. more. Um, Joe, right. thank you so much for coming on the show. What an incredible episode. I can't wait to share this. And I just really, really appreciate you sharing your time and your story with us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com.
Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Brooke Walters-Schmidt, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Danielle Signorelli, Alexandria Henderson, and Justin Minnick. And our $25 per month producers, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash majorpain podcast.